Good evening. Hey. How y'all doing? Hey. All right. Tonight, as you can see, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 31. So if you don't have your Bible, you can look on the screens. If you do have your Bible, it's a pretty good practice of following along with a preacher out of your Bible. Okay, so Acts 4, 23-31. This is what we're going to read about talk about tonight. Listen to this. After they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they all raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against His Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled against together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats, and grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness, while you stretch out your hand for healing, signs, and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. So tonight what we're going to look at is we're going to look at Peter and John after they've been persecuted, after they've been arrested and tried for healing a man in the name of Jesus and then preaching the resurrection of Jesus. They've come back and, and, and this is where we are and we pick up after that event. The first thing that I want us to see is that Peter and John had the benefit of being able to identify with other believers. Because remember, there, there's thousands of them by now. And so Peter and John have had this event to where they've, they've been arrested, they've been tried, they couldn't find any real guilt in them, because after all, they had done a great miracle that people were giving praise to God for, and so they just kind of shook them up, threatened them, and said, don't do that anymore. Don't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And so Peter and John returned to their own people. Now who were their own people? Something is changing here. There's a difference being made between the Jews and the Christians. They're, they're classified as their own people now. And so they returned to their own people. And what we see is that in the church we have the benefit of identification. You guys know that? You guys, you remember when we went to, um, to New Mexico and some of you guys were freaking out and asking kind of silly questions like, hey, do we need a passport? When we went to, you know, and when we went to Santa Fe, you were like, hey, do they take dollars? You know, and, and you even said, like, like, you hung around Leslie because she spoke Spanish and you were like afraid that no one was going to speak Spanish in New Mexico? English? I'm sorry. Thank you, Leslie. You were afraid that no one was going to speak English in New Mexico, you were, so you stuck with Leslie because she knows Spanish? You, wanted, you were afraid that you weren't going to be able to identify, that you were not going to be um, able to communicate, and, and you were afraid you were going to be in somewhat of a foreign culture. Guys, the church should be a foreign culture to the rest of the world, and we should be able to retreat to one another 
to gather together for identification so that we can look at each other and we can say, I identify with your struggles. I identify with your joy. I identify with your thinking. The church should be something completely separate from culture. The body of believers should be so distinguished in the way they think and in the way they live that we truly are different. Look at what Hebrews 10, 23, and 25 says. It says, Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. So there's a confession that binds us in hope. We have confession and we have hope in common. We can come together and we can identify with one another in our confession and in our hope. For he who promised is faithful. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Not, not staying away from our worship meetings as some habitually do, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day drawing near. What, what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is giving us a perfect example of why it was so important for Peter and John to return back to their own people. Because they had just been roughed up a little bit. It would have been easy if they had isolated themselves to see that they were just two people who were trying to do something great for God, but they were against all of this power and all of this authority in their culture. And if they had isolated themselves, you know what they would have felt? Overwhelmed. So they returned back to their own people. They returned back to the church. Do you see where, where this is good? Because whenever you're just two men standing in front of the Sanhedrin, the most powerful men in your time, it'd be really easy to think, well, we, we can't really overcome anything. That, I mean, look at all this power. But whenever you join together, when they went back and they joined together with the thousands who believe, there's great encouragement and hope in that, right? Guys, it is so important that you don't stop coming together as believers. It's so important that, that while, while some of us have this mentality and, and some of your family members or friends may have even said this, maybe you've even said this, I don't believe you have to go to church to be a Christian. Really? You don't believe you have to be a part of God's body to be accepted by God? You don't believe that you have to be part of Christ's bride to be one of the ones who are taken as His bride when He comes back? You don't believe that you have to come together as a Christian to, to benefit from the, the source of identity that we have with one another? Listen to what 1 John 2, 18-19 says. This is the New Testament making the claim that yes, you do, you, you will as a Christian Come to church. You will be joined together with other believers. Whatever that church gathering looks like for you, it will be a part of your life if you truly are a believer. 1 John 2, 18-19 says, Children, it is the last hour. And you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. What, what, what John is, is saying here is that you've heard that things are going to get bad. You've heard that there's going to be opposition to Christ. And in fact, opposition is here. We've already experienced persecution. We've already experienced opposition to the name of Jesus. We know from this that it is the last hour. They. They are the people who proclaimed Christ 
who made a profession of faith, may have even been baptized, came to church for a little bit, but whenever the, the persecution came and it was hot and it was heavy, they went out from us. They said, we can't do this. This is ridiculous. There's got to be an easier, softer way. But they did not belong to us. You see what John is saying here? He's saying, those who belong to us, the church, are those who persevere through trials with us. Those are, they're the people who defend the bride of Christ and exalt the bride of Christ and glorify God by being a part of the bride of Christ, His church. He said, they didn't belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. So is it important for you to join together with the body of Christ? To not forsake the assembling of yourselves as some habitually do? Absolutely. It's one of the evidences in your life that you truly are a believer in Christ. Is that you come together as His body to do His work. The next thing I want to look at, so Peter and John, they have returned back to, to the body where they can identify, where they can share all that has happened to them and all the, the chief priests and, and the Sanhedrin have said to them. And then when they do that, look at what it says. It's after they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they being the body of Christ assembled, they all raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Can I suggest to you that that response looks nothing like our response? As the church in this country, in the Bible Belt, we don't suffer a great deal of persecution. But whenever we do suffer some persecution, whenever religious freedom is trying to be uh, oppressed, and whenever, whenever your, your right to openly proclaim and profess Jesus is, is trying to be snuffed out, we don't cry out, Master, this is your world. We cry out, well, that's not fair. Why do the Muslims get to do everything that they get to do? And why do the Hindus get to do everything that they get to do? I mean, this is a country built on Christian principles. This isn't fair. You're never promised fair as a follower of Jesus, especially in a fallen, sinful, degrading culture. You're promised persecution. And to cry foul and demand for fairness is silly. It's anti-biblical. It has nothing to do with what Jesus promised we would experience. We see this church showing an immediate dependence on God. They, when they heard that they're being persecuted, they didn't cry unfair. They cried, Master, this is your world. Notice the pattern of the early church when its members faced difficulties. First, we see them as individuals turning to the support of the group of the church, and then we see the church turning to the support of their God. And, and what we don't see in this church are people who have come together to worry. You'll see that in the next few verses, but we don't see worry. We see a declaration of God's sovereignty. We see a declaration of trust and faith in God. We see people sitting back and saying, 
Master, this is your earth. We're your people. They're your creation as well as us. Everything in this is yours. It's almost as though they actually believed Jesus when He said in Matthew 6, 25-30, This is why I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body or what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wildflowers in the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't He do much more for you, you of little faith? So we see the church actually having faith in Jesus, having faith in God like Jesus said they were supposed to have faith in Him. That whenever circumstances build up, whenever people are imposing um, on our rights or, or what we perceive as rights of religious freedom, they don't cry unfair. They don't worry about whether or not it's going to get worse. They don't, they don't worry. They turn to their God who is the creator of the universe and is in complete control. And that's the next thing we see in verse 25 through 28 in this Acts chapter 4. They say, you said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of your father David, your servant, servant, why? And this is back in Psalms chapter 2. David, King David is saying this. He's prophesying about Jesus and how Jesus is going to be treated. David said in Psalms, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against His Messiah. That's Psalms Long ago psalms. And then they're saying, for in fact, today, in our time, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel assembled against your servant Jesus. So what David prophesied was going to happen, it happened to Jesus. You knew that this was going to happen. You gave David the words to speak that that the rulers of, of this world would rise up and stand in opposition to what you were doing through your servant. Jesus came. He was your servant. He was your holy and anointed one. And the, the rulers of this day stood in opposition to what you were doing through Him. What this is, is an acceptance of God's sovereign will. It's an acceptance of God's sovereign will. When the church fully accepts that God is sovereign, and God's sovereign means simply just, it's a, it's, a, it's a theology word that means in control. Down to the very smallest detail, God is in control. There's not a thing that happens in this world that God does not know about. There's not a thing in this world that happens that catches God off guard. He does not react to anything we do. He is completely sovereign in His power, in His presence, and in His knowledge. He is complete in His control of His world. So, 
when the church fully accepts that God is sovereign over all creation, and, and we will find in that acceptance, we will find that nothing can stop us from accomplishing great things for the kingdom of God. We sing about it, don't we? It's one of our favorite songs. We hear it on the radio. It says, Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer. He's awesome in power. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? And if our God is with us, then what can stand against? But do we believe it? Do we live as those, as though those words that we sing out at conferences and sometimes we sing in here or we shout out in the, in the car as we're going down the road listening to K-Love? Do we really believe those words for what they're worth? Do we really believe that if God is our Father, then we are His beloved children and He will be a good Father to us? What good father will leave his cherished sons and daughters in their time of need? What good father would ever turn his back on his precious children when they need him most? This first century, this, this, this Jerusalem church in, in Acts chapter 4, they had no fear that God was going to leave them. They basically are saying, Master, this is your world and you knew this was going to happen. Jesus told them about it all throughout his ministry. You're going to be hated because of me. You're going to be put before Sanhedrins because of me. If they persecute me, how much more are they going to persecute you? I, I, he, says, he says, I didn't come to bring peace to this world. I came to literally put, put a, div, a, a dividing issue in relationships that are the closest. I came to turn father against son. I came to, to turn daughter against mother and in-laws against one another. Because see, you can't, you can't have allegiance to anyone else but me. And if you have allegiance to only me, you're going to be persecuted. People are going to turn their back on you. And they say, we know this. Peter and John and the rest of the believers, they're saying, we totally accept that this is your world. We totally accept that this is your sovereign will, that bad things happen so that something great can come out of it. One of the greatest themes in Scripture is that when the people of God depend on His power and accept His will, God acts in mighty and supernatural ways to accomplish His purpose. Look back with me for a little bit, and we'll see that it was God's will for the Israelites to reach the Red Sea. A very bad circumstance, right? I mean, they had been brought out of Egypt. They had fled for their lives to go to the promised land that God had promised them. And then, boom, they're stuck up against the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army just coming down on them. We see that that was God's will for them to come to that point of absolute crisis and dependence on Him so that He could prove Himself sovereign over, over their circumstances. And we see that it was God's will for Goliath to stand in opposition to God's people so that God could prove Himself sovereign over the greatest of enemies. We see that it was God's will for Gideon to find himself facing a vast army with only a few hundred men so that God can prove Himself sovereign over the world's odds. We also see that it was God's will for Elijah to face hundreds of zealous idolaters so that God could prove Himself sovereign over man's rebellion against Him. Do you see the theme here? God allows for people to, to rebel against Him. God allows for people to 
be in opposition to Him. God allows circumstances to become completely unmanageable. And whenever God's people have faith in Him, He does amazing things. We see that it was God's will for, for, God, for Jesus to come and to be nailed to a cross so that God could prove Himself sovereign over sin's power in our lives. And now in the text, we see that it's God's will for the church to suffer persecution so that God could prove Himself sovereign over fear and weakness. The next thing we see in verse 29 and 30 is a commitment to the mission. They've come back. They've been persecuted. They've come back. They've shared all that the, the, the elders and the leaders had, had said to them. They cried out and they said, Master, we're not worried. This is your world. In fact, we're, we're so not worried. You predicted that this was going to happen. And so we totally, we totally accept your sovereign will. We understand that we may suffer. We will suffer for, for your message, for your gospel. But we're committed to the mission. Look at what 29 and 30 says. And now, Lord, consider their threats. They don't say consider their threats in hopes that God will, will revenge, you know, avenge them and get them back. They, they, don't, they don't say consider their threats in a way that we're going to form a committee and we're going to go and lobby to our, our governing officials and try to get them to change their minds. So that it can be easier for us Christians to proclaim the gospel. So that we don't really have to, to have any persecution or anything like that. They don't say that. They, say, they simply just say, And grant your slaves the ability to speak your message with complete boldness. How many of us approach God with the posture of a slave? How many of us have it in our prayer lives to ask God for complete boldness to share His message. Verse 30, While you, God, while you stretch out your hand for healing, signs, and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They're saying, there are things that you will do. There are things that only you can do. And those are the, the healing and the signs and the wonders that you're going to do through us to perform miracles through the name of, of your servant Jesus. So they're saying, you do that, God. We just want to be able to do our part. We just want to be able to speak boldly because there's nothing else that, that, that we've been asked to do by you but to just share your message. Look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. As Jesus says to them, He came near. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go make disciples. That's your job. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have influence. Go use it. It's your job. And God's not going to leave you hanging. God's not going to put you into a situation where He doesn't already know how you're supposed to handle that. And He's not going to leave you alone in that situation to fend for yourselves. 
He's going to give you the power through the Holy Spirit to do it. In fact, it's another promise that Jesus gives in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He doesn't say you're going to be my witnesses as long as, you know, it's easy. He says, no, I'm going to have to fill you with the power of the Holy Spirit. The job is so big. You guys are acting like I'm not saying anything, but listen. The job is so big. And the task is so out of our control, just over our heads. It is so enormous that we're supposed to take the message literally to everyone in the world. And for that to happen, we can't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to go on a short-term mission trip all willy-nilly. We have to be dependent on a power outside of ourselves. And you know what kind of power that takes? Do you know what kind of source we have to tap into? It's the power that literally raised Jesus from the dead. It's the power that was able to speak everything into existence from nothing. And so we take this so nonchalantly, like, yeah, I'll share Jesus if I get an opportunity. No! We're supposed to depend on this power in such a way that we were filled with complete boldness. Regardless of what the circumstances and regardless of what the opportunities present us with. This power is magnificent. And we are missing out on the joy of living in it. When this church that we're reading about was standing under the weight of persecution and difficult circumstances, they did not complain. They didn't whine and moan about how unfair the priests and the elders were being. They didn't cry out for justice or revenge. They stayed committed to what the Lord had commanded them to do. They didn't try to change the laws. They tried to change people's hearts. Our work as the church should go on regardless of the circumstances we face. Our commitment to the mission. Serving the poor and progressing the gospel are non-negotiable aspects of who we are as the church. As Peter stated in his defense against the rulers of his day, he said, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. He had to break allegiance with his government. He had to break allegiance with the religious elite in his day. He literally had to break allegiance from his culture. And he had to be someone different. He had to be someone who was willing to go to death for what he believed in. Christianity is no longer the home team in this nation. And I don't care how many lobbyists we have at Capitol Hill. I don't care how many petitions Christians sign. I don't care how many, how many uh, evangelicals we vote into government. The reality is, is that this world is spinning out of control. And that shouldn't make us hopeless. It should make us insanely on task for the gospel. Because our time is running out. It's not going to get any better 
in this country until Jesus returns for His church. And He makes all things new. As followers of Jesus, we are without excuse for our lack of sharing the gospel. Let us, let our politicians outlaw prayer in schools, let our government dictate what can and cannot be preached in pulpits, and let the world display hostility to the truth. Let our friends and families abandon us for the sake of the gospel. That should be of no concern to us. We have a message to proclaim and a Savior to make known. The last thing I want us to see is in verse 31, and I'll try to finish quickly. Verse 31 says, when they, had pre- or when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. The last thing we see is they requested to glorify God, and their request was answered. Have you ever wondered why you don't have the courage to share the gospel? Have you ever wondered why our lives look so different in respect to the priorities and practice of those who, of the first believers? Have you ever thought of Peter and John, James and Paul as these superheroes of the faith? Men who just reached a higher level with God than we'll ever be capable of? Did greater things than we'll ever experience? What's the difference? What makes these guys so incredibly superior in their faith? Listen to what Charles Spurgeon wrote. He said, A Christian minister, above every man, must have no object in life but to glorify God, and whether it is fair weather or foul weather, it should be nothing to him. He should be a man who looks for fights and expects storms, and in proportion to his faithfulness, he will be sure to meet with both. Do you guys get that? It should not matter what the laws are in our land. It should not matter what our teachers say we can and can't do as far as praying for one another and sharing the gospel in our schools. Yeah, I'm telling you to go against authority when it comes to asking the question, should I obey God or should I obey them? We are diseased in our thinking if we believe that the God who goes to such extreme measures to save us will be satisfied with anything less than absolute devotion to His will for our lives. Guys, can you imagine the absolute bliss that we can experience in this life when we decide to follow Christ for everything it's worth and to truly and fully experience Life the way we were created to live it. When we remove the cancer of of laziness, when we remove the cancer of rebellion, when we remove the cancer of of this this selfish, me-centered faith that we, we, we have, and we realize... That in creating us for His glory, He has created us for our highest joy. We were created for His glory. We were created to push forward in this culture for the glory of God. To make Him known for who He is. And when we're doing that, we're experiencing the highest joy.
Piper's, John Piper's moniker or whatever his catchphrase is, he is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. These saints of the New Testament are not superheroes. They are regular people who found that their satisfaction in this life was entirely dependent on glorifying God. And so many of us are here tonight and we know that we just have not been living in that fully satisfied state with God. We know that we have, we have purposely walked the other direction in our lives whenever given the opportunity to share the gospel. We know that, that we treat church, coming to church as a chore or just something we do to see people than to come and to worship a living God who is present and worth our absolute adoration. I just want to encourage you to, to think about where your life stands in respect to the mission we've been given. And what excuses do you lean on to keep you from sharing the gospel like Jesus has, has required of His followers? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You, God, for tonight. And I thank You, Lord, for Your Word. I thank You for the witness and the example of great men like Peter and John. And I thank You for the future witness and example of the great men and women who are in this room tonight. Lord, because I believe that Your Word is true and I believe that we are fully capable of experiencing this type of life. But God, we're going to need boldness. God, we're going to need to be filled with the, the power of Your Holy Spirit so that we can have complete boldness and we can stand firm in the confession of our faith and we can be united in the hope that we have in You. God, I pray that you would fill us with boldness as we go into our schools, as we go back to our families, as we're interacting with our friends online or in person or on the phone. God, I pray that you would fill us with an urgency for the gospel. I pray, Lord, that from this day on, this prayer for boldness will be a part of our everyday prayer lives. That, God, we need to depend on you to fill us with what we need to give people what they need. God, we can't do this without you, and so we need you, Lord. We need, we need to be completely satisfied in you. Help us, God, to have the single focus of glorifying you as we leave this place tonight. And it's in Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen.